Welcome to the Powercast with Charlie Johnson. I'm one of the world's leading fitness and transformation coaches. I'm going to be providing you with the tools to build your ultimate body and mind. So back into another amazing episode of the Powercast today and absolute huge pleasure to have Patrick McKeown onto the podcast, uh, author of the book, The Option Advantage and world leading expert in everything to do with breathing uh, from maybe slightly sunny today, Dublin and Ireland, which is not in the UK. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, Patrick. Sure, Charlie. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Um, so having listened to some of your amazing conversations previously on Ben Pekorski's podcast, and a couple of the other uh, people's podcasts I listen to myself, really, really excited to see what information you have today. I'm going to go through sort of how breathing can affect performance uh, like within training and also affect it in terms of results from a health aspect. Um, we initially had a few conversations already prior to the podcast, which was quite interesting. So interested to see what tangents this goes down. Um, to give us a brief introduction to yourself, Patrick, and how you initially came into uh, the breathing world, I, like reading through some of your back history, you initially suffered with asthma, mm-hmm. sort of led you into this field? Yeah, it was, t- it was totally by accident. Um, having asthma as a kid, as a teenager into my early 20s, and if you have asthma, you're more likely to have nasal obstruction. So I was a chronic mouth breather. I was one of those kids that be eating dinner and uh, not having the best of table manners because you're trying to chew and breathe through your mouth at the same time. And, you know, little things like that stick with you. And you can be admonished at the time. But I think really the impact it was having was both from a breathing perspective, from a sleep perspective, and also for, from anxiety of the mind. Because... If you have a breathing pattern disorder, it's not just isolated to breathing. Your sleep is all right, all, your sleep is also likely to be affected, and so is the mind. So there's an interconnectedness there between the three functions. And I came across a newspaper article back in 1998, and it spoke about the importance of breathing through the nose, and it spoke about the importance of breathing light. It was about the work of a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko. I used his techniques to open up my nose, to change to nasal breathing. And I know that can sound totally bizarre that somebody has to learn how to change their breathing patterns. They have to learn how to breathe the right way. Um, And it's normal in human behavior because if we're doing something the wrong way and modern lifestyle changes our breathing. So we do develop poor breathing patterns and they're actually more prevalent than we think. You know, so yeah, I switched to nasal breathing and changed my breathing patterns and it absolutely changed my life. It was a few years later, I decided then I wanted to change careers. My background is economics. I have a, an MA from Trinity College in Dublin. And I was in the corporate world, which I didn't like anyway. I wasn't suited to it. I felt that the, the multinational company I was working for owned me. And I'm sure some of your listeners are probably going to see, feel in the same boat. Um, and sometimes it's nice to have a bit of stress in your life because it causes you to change and to refocus and to rethink new ways. And uh, yeah, the silver lining was I found a job that I absolutely love to do. So yeah. I only had to spend three years in the corporate world before I got the, the hell Just out of it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that a lot of people might not be aware of is obviously uh, the reason why mouth breathing is inferior to nasal breathing. And like maybe our originally how we were originally nasal breathers as sort of man's evolved and that sort of changed over time. Do you want to delve into that a little bit perhaps? Yeah, it did. The conversation just, I lost a little bit, but I'm sure that the question there was, 
why have we developed from mouth to nose, from nose to mouth breathing? If you look at our ancestors, we are innate nasal breathers. Our ancestors were nasal breathers. Um, it's probably got to do with a change of diet. And the first documented cases of it, I think in terms of malocclusion, of, which is crooked teeth, is dating back about 400 years ago. And it's from a book by Dr. John Mew, who is a, an orthodontist. And he's also um, an, an anthropologist. So basically, he was looking at the bodies of individuals who were exhumed from upper middle class backgrounds 400 years ago. And these individuals had overcrowding of teeth. They had very narrow arches. So their jaws were not big enough for their tongue and their mouths were quite small. And as, as a result of having such a small mouth, their teeth were crooked. Now, why would the mouth be small? Well, the mouth is typically small when the tongue isn't resting in the roof of the mouth because it's the pressures exerted by the tongue and the roof of the mouth that help to shape the, the jaws and the lower 50% of the face. Mouth breeders don't have their tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. You cannot have your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth if you breathe through your mouth. So nose breeders growing up during childhood typically have a good tongue resting posture. And this allows then for a more normal craniofacial development. So I think they were some of the signs, you know. So mouth breathing happened. Yeah, linked to a change of diet. And if you again, if you look at the work of Dr. Weston Price, 1938, his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, he spoke about when, when traditional groups of people switch from their normal diet, which they've had for tens of thousands of years, over to a processed diet with sugars, with uh, marmalades, with chocolate, that first-generation children were becoming mouth breeders. And also these children were developing crooked teeth. And the problem is that mouth breathing during the formative years of childhood it impacts the shape of the face and it impacts the shape of the face that the face is more likely to be narrow and long and the problem there is that also the jaws can be set back and the airway can be compromised so a child who is mouth breathing during their formative years they can develop craniofacial abnormalities which they have for the rest of their life and the impact there is on their sleep and we know that 25 to 50% of studied children persistently mouthbreed. Now, a podcast for performance, we have to look at the next generations here. Very few healthcare professionals are advocating that children breathe through the nose. Um, if you look at different conditions impacted by nasal breathing, the, the most logical one would be asthma. You look at the population in the UK with asthma, it's about 7, 8% of the population about 5 million people and yet this group of people with asthma children teenagers adults more likely to mouth breed because of nasal obstruction because if you have asthma and if it's affecting your lungs disinflammation of the lungs can travel up to the nose and vice versa and if your nose is stuffy you're not like you're not likely to breathe through it so we have a group of people then with asthma more likely to breathe through an open mouth which is causing cooling and drying of the airway walls which is feeding back into their asthma. And yet, even with this group, high-risk group, in terms of mouth breathing, there is no mention of the importance of nasal breathing. So nasal breathing is just one of those things which is being completely overlooked by the medical profession, with the exception of a couple of notable dentists and orthodontists. And these dentists and orthodontists, and one is based in Surrey, by the way, um, they have been 
absolutely vilified by their peers because they've been talking about the importance of nasal breathing for airway development and their peers have criticized them in the process. So I'm, I'm hoping to see the day that nasal breathing gets its, its place in health. Um, we're already seeing some impact in sleep by the work of Dr. Christian Guimano, who some will consider is the founding father of obstructive sleep, ap sleep medicine. You know, he developed the, the apnea hypopnea index, which is a measure of the severity of sleep apnea. And he also coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. And in his latter years, Dr. Guimano, sadly he passed away about a year ago, he talked about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep as a treatment of pediatric sleep disorder breathing. And he said, as the only valid and complete correction of pediatric sleep disorder breathing is restoration of nasal breathing. But that information hasn't trickled down to general practitioner level. And um, it hasn't trickled down to most healthcare professionals. So I think breathing, you know, Charlie has often been misinterpreted. It's often been overlooked, but with that sleep has also been overlooked. And, you know, in terms of performance, if you talk about performance of the mind, that ability to focus, to concentrate, to have stability of thought, to be in a good humor, that's very much impacted by sleep quality. And it's also very much impacted by breathing. And I was a kid growing up, I was waking up exhausted. I was going into school, falling asleep at the desk. Um, you know, you're academic, you're, you're, your intelligence is rated on the basis of what you achieve academically during those teenage years. And yeah, what about the child who's mouth breathing? They can be very intelligent too, but they are tired. And if you are mouth breathing and resulting in sleep disorder breathing, you have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. And one study which is co conducted in Stratford-upon-Avon by Karen Bonnock, she looked at 11,000 children, and I think it's over an eight-year period, and there was a 40% increased risk of special education needs in children with sleep disorder breathing, and a contributory factor to sleep disorder breathing is mouth breathing. So um, I think it's often a almost hidden gem in terms of improving quality of life that people don't necessarily look at. Like using yes. myself as an example, I was having uh, issues with my blood pressure was high for no real apparent reason. And then as soon as I started using nasal strips, like bam, my blood pressure dropped massively and I was sleeping a huge amount better. Um, so I th like from one side of things, I think for, for me, it's uh, that really opened my eyes. And that's probably about two years ago to the importance of nasal breathing. Um, and I think it's really something that's often overlooked. And it's a shame like what you said about the orthodontists and dentists who are being vilified by their industry because I think when I mean, you must see it an awful lot that people are very much um, stuck to their own opinions of the old school thought maybe uh, whether yes. it be right or wrong yes yes um, I think it's changing there is a new book that's due out I don't have a copy of it close to hand but it's uh, by a journalist called James Nestor if I had it I would show you I just got a galley copy of it um, as it came com in from Penguin Books so just spare me one second. I'm just looking at it here. So what I have is just the kind of the, the first editions of it. It's called Brett, The New Science of a Lost Art. And he also has uncovered and gone through many of the topics which, which I've covered in the Oxygen Advantage book. But it's great to see it coming from <clears throat> an investigative journalist. 
because he's digging deep into it and he's interviewing people in the process and he's interviewing both sides. <clears throat> and it's a most interesting and fascinating book. I think this is going to be a game changer in terms of generating an awareness of the power of the breath. And just watch this space and it's starting to change. The last three years have been absolutely influential. And what will happen then is that readers, mothers, fathers, son's daughter, grandparents, after getting this information, then they will decide, they will be asking questions from the healthcare professionals. And the healthcare professionals then will be encouraged to start investigating the effect of nasal breathing. I remember, you know, that after years of chronic mouth breathing, waking up exhausted. And by the way, if you are chronic mouth breathing, you are more likely to snore and you are more likely to have upper airway resistance syndrome and you are more likely to stop breathing during your sleep. I was stopping breathing during my sleep. When you stop breathing during sleep, your blood pressure rises. And if you continuously stop breathing during your sleep, the blood pressure that rises during your sleep carries through to into the day. And this was how obstructive sleep apnea was discovered. Now, it was around a long time. It was originally called Pickwickian syndrome. And it affects more males than females. But to give you an example of the statistics, it affects 26% of males, one in four, up to the age of 49. And from 50 years plus, it affects 43% of males, almost one in two. In females, it affects 9% of females up to the age of 49. And from 50 years plus, it affects 27% of females, it triples. So here you have a large cohort of the population. And even in individuals who are physically fit, especially rugby guys, weightlifters, the big guys, Guys with a 17-inch neck, they are very vulnerable to the effects of obstructive sleep apnea. And the problem here is these guys who are doing physical fitness, they're stressing their hearts during the day, which is good during their physical exercise, but their heart is also getting stressed during their sleep, which is bad, and their heart isn't recovering. So sometimes we hear of a 43-year-old or a 44-year-old, and they have died suddenly in their sleep. We have to suspect was obstructive sleep apnea the issue here? And again, it wasn't, it wasn't um, you know, discovered. So, you know, it's, it's like, even just with a normal, it's like, how can you, in terms of quality of life, not just in childhood, but always, you know, in teenage years, as I spoke about academic achievement, but the ability to handle stress, you know, we need to have a quietness of the mind, a stillness of the mind, and we don't need to have a mind that's constantly agitated. When the mind is constantly agitated, our focus is distracted by recurring and incessant and often negative thinking. And how can you then, you know, come up with a solution or decide or determine a plan of action or decide on a sequence of events adequately unless you have the capacity to hold your attention on doing what you're doing. So concentration is one of those things that we really need to achieve any sort of quality of work. The carpenter would poor concentration. He will start putting down skirting boards, but he's in such a rush to get to the future that he's not going to have his attention on doing what he's doing. 
and oftentimes the carpenter with poor concentration may abandon the job to go on to something else because they are in a constant rush to get to the future. Agitation of the mind is impacting more than just our happiness. And of course, happiness is, is really where it's all about. But our productivity, our focus, our relationships with everybody. And um, if the mind is polluted, we are not just polluting our own space. And why am I talking about incessant thought activity? Because unless you get a good quality sleep, you're not going to have quality of the mind. And unless you have quality breathing, you are not going to have quality of the mind. If your breathing is off, your sleep is off. If your sleep is off, the mind is off. If your mind is off, your breathing is off. And also if your mind is off, your sleep is off. Because if, if one of us has a stressful day and it's been a, a really highly stressed day, we go to sleep that night and we can't fall asleep so easy because we are regurgitating all of that stuff through our head. So, you know, when the mind is agitated, we can't sleep. But then if we don't sleep right, we, we, our quietness of the mind isn't present. And you're talking about weight loss. You, you mentioned it earlier on. If one is sleep apnea, and sleep apnea increases with obesity. And one of the reasons that it increases with obesity is because there's fat deposits on the tongue. The tongue gets fatter. It occupies more space in the mouth. And it therefore can encroach in the airway. So but also there's fat pads on the throat. The throat gets fatter. The airway gets narrow. But also with men, especially when we hit 40 years of age, we put fat on the belly. And when we put fat on the belly, it affects diaphragmatic breathing. So when we have a reduction to the use, or if we, are, if we are breathing fast and shallow, it reduces lung volume and the throat is more liable to collapse. So it's a very important that it's often a vicious circle because if we are then stopping breathing during our sleep, it messes up hormones, leptin and ghrelin, and ghrelin is promoting appetite. So the recurrent stopping of the breath during sleep increases ghrelin, <clears throat> ghrelin then is promoting our appetite we eat more food we put more weight on the belly this increases the severity of our sleep problems and this in turn is feeding back into um increased appetite now remember i had two partners <clears throat> business partners we were in texas going for a meal and these guys were pretty big guys now in terms of texans can be pretty big anyway but these were you know well up there I went for a meal with them. I never seen one guy horse a salad. He had a salad the size of what I would consider as a main course. But he, he horsed the salad as the starter. And then he horsed the main course. And I never seen him eat so quick. And he was ginormous. And I was wondering, what on earth is stimulating his appetite? And I had to then think about, it has to be his sleep apnea. And he had sleep apnea at the time. So again, you know, can we consider the human body without considering a bi-directional relationship of different functions? No function is isolated and we cannot affect, we cannot, you know, just look at one. And problem with modern medicine is that it has separated different, you know, areas, different areas of health. And what we want to do is we need to look at a holistic approach. Out of interest, I think it'd be fascinating. I don't know if there's ever been a study done. I would be very, very curious to know the percentage of people who are morbidly obese who mouth breathe. Yeah. Um, again, it hasn't got any attention. 
the only study that I can find of individuals that has ever been conducted. And if any of your listeners come across studies looking at the instance of mouth breathing in adults, I have only found one study ever. And that's, I've been actively looking for studies. What is the incidence of mouth breathing in the adult population? We do not know because nobody has bothered studying it. One Japanese study has concluded that it affects 17%. I really feel that's an understatement. It was, it was determined by questionnaires. Um, and the problem with assessing mouth breathing is that not everybody will breathe through their mouth 100% of the time. More likely is that people will switch from mouth to nose breathing and vice versa. More likely, we have one study that individuals over 40 years of age they are six times more likely to spend at least 50% of their sleep time breathing through an open mouth. So again, we see it can be age-related. During physical exercise, I would say the vast majority of people, regardless of age, breathe through an open mouth during physical exercise. The switch from mouth, the switch from nose to mouth breathing happens when we are consuming or when we are breathing a volume of air between 35 and 40 liters. It's not going to happen during walking. So many people will walk with their mouth closed and you will see some people walking with their mouths open. I sat in cafes in Belfast, in Cork, in Dublin, in Limerick quite a few years ago. And I sat in cafes with a window out onto a street. And I sat there for about a half an hour taking the amount of people going by who had their mouth open and who had their mouth closed. It was typically about 50%. So 50% of people walking past with their mouth open now you know like i think if you go to a gym and you just look in the door it will be very unlikely that you will find nasal breathers in there and it just doesn't make sense to breathe with an open mouth during physical exercise it's highly inefficient it's reducing oxygen uptake in the blood it's reducing oxygen delivery to the tissues it's traumatizing the airways there's a poor recovery post physical exercise it absolutely doesn't make sense. And one paper, again, quite understudied, Dr. John Dulliard wrote a book called Body, Mind and Sport or Mind, Body and Sport, going back 30 years ago. And he looked at the effects of nasal breathing during physical exercise on entering the flow state. Nasal breathing changed the, the brain waves and was more conducive that the individual breathing through their nose during physical exercise was entering flow state rather than mouth breathing. So I think there's fascinating stuff out there. And the science is starting to catch up. If you look at the work by Dr. John, da sorry, by Dr. George Dallum, who is also investigating nasal breathing during sports. So he got 10 recreational athletes. He had them switch to nasal breathing for a period of six months. He then tested them at six month follow-up. They were able to attain 100% work rate intensity on a graded exercise test but with 22% less ventilation with nasal breathing. Now, if you can perform physical exercise with 22% less ventilation, that is a tremendous saving economically. And initially it is tougher. You switch from mouth to nose breathing, you feel that you're not getting enough air. But the fact that you're feeling you're not getting enough air signifies that carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. And carbon dioxide is the stimulus to breathe. And if you expose your body to higher CO2 levels over a period of time, you reduce the body's sensitivity towards carbon dioxide 
and as a result, your breathlessness reduces. So you can do the same intensity and duration of physical exercise, but with less breathlessness. Interestingly, I've, I've tried um, doing some like warm-up routines recently for probably three to five minutes using nasal breathing only uh, for the first time ever. And I, I found it fascinating. It's incredibly challenging and towards the end. It almost gives the feeling of almost drowning. Um, yes. The air, hunger, the air hunger can be quite strong. But, you know, I suppose the main thing is to do it within your limits. Yeah. I probably pushed it maybe further than I should have done. But it's, um, that was more of like a cardiovascular training side of things. And I have tried it in terms of like doing a set of doing, say, barbell squats, just doing nasal breathing. What I found interesting with that was actually how much more uh, core stimulation and stability I almost had from just breathing. I think with my diaphragms contracting so much better. Yes. There is a total relationship between functional breathing and functional movement. And our diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration, but it also provides stability for the spine um, and for the generation of intra-abdominal pressure. So you can imagine a weightlifter, they're lifting a weight. And as they lift a weight, they will typically breathe in and hold their breath. They breathe in and their diaphragm is moving downwards. And this is compressing the abdomen, almost like a pneumatic balloon, to provide stabilization and stability so that the spine doesn't buckle. So intra-abdominal pressure is really important um, in terms of functional movement. And a good indicator of intra-abdominal pressure is when you breathe in, that the lower ribs are gently moving out. And when you breathe out, that the lower ribs are gently moving in. So it takes intra-abdominal pressure to push the ribs outwards. But mouth breathing doesn't activate or bring the air deeper into the lower regions of the lungs. Mouth breathing is in, invariably associated with upper chest breathing, with shallow breathing. So shallow breathing and mouth breathing, it just absolutely doesn't make any sense at all. And the reason being is because in the human lungs, the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower lobes of the lungs. So if we were going for a run and the mouth is open, and if the athlete is breathing fast and shallow, they are going to have a reduced ventilation, perfusion, or gas exchange. So the typical oxygen uptake in the blood, the pressure of oxygen increases by 10% in the blood by switching from mouth to nose breathing. But also as carbon dioxide increases, because there's a resistance imposed to breathing, so carbon dioxide increases in the blood because it cannot leave the body through the lungs. And as carbon dioxide increases, it causes what's called the right shift of, an ox of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. More oxygen gets delivered to the tissues. So the air hunger that the athlete experiences when they switch to nasal breathing, that air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. And in the process, carbon dioxide is helping to open up blood circulation, improve blood flow, and oxygen delivery to the tissues. So... Um it's a fascinating how much of an effect this can have on you and how, how people probably just aren't even aware of this, I think as a, as a, as a hidden gem in terms yeah. of like from a, like a physical training side of things, say for strength training, would you advocate literally strictly if you can do maybe reduce your training intensity back, which you probably would have to do and then just try and focus on doing nasal breathing only and then progress yes. up perhaps. Yeah. There's a couple of factors that play a role in the air hunger there. Number one is bolt score. If an individual has a lower bolt score, they will have an increased intensity of air hunger. Can you just explain what the bolt score is? Bolt score is you take, you're sitting down for about five minutes. You take a normal breath in and out through your nose. And you pinch your nose to hold your breath. 
and you time it in seconds, how long does it take until you feel the first involuntary contractions of the breathing muscles or the first definite desire to breathe? And your breath following the bolt score should be fairly normal. Now, a paper by a physical therapist, a professor of physical therapy by Kiesel in 2017, he looked at what's the best way <clears throat> to screen for breathing pattern disorders in the athlete population. And he concluded that breath hold time was, a, was very effective. That, and the breath hold time is exactly as the bolt score. You take a normal breath in and out, hold your nose, time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe? His conclusion was, if your breath hold time, your bolt score is greater than 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. And furthermore, papers then found an association between functional breathing and functional movement. In terms of those who passed the functional movement screen, and I know some people will be critical of the FMS, but in terms of people who passed it, 87.5% of those individuals were diaphragmatic breathers. They were breathing low. So, you know, and then you look at the connection between functional movement and risk of injury. So our breathing and how we breathe, if one is an athlete with a breathing pattern disorder, they are more likely to gas out too soon. They are more likely to like have disproportionate breathlessness. They are more likely to have respiratory muscle fatigue. They could be more likely to have cramps, exhaustion, um, and what's furthermore, they were more likely to, to perform, you know, not up to, to par in terms of functional movement, and that therefore can increase the risk of injury. So I think there's a lot going on <clears throat> in terms of, you know, for, for athletes. But coming back to your question, if an individual switches from mouth to nose breathing, what are the factors that determine the air hunger during that physical exercise? Number one is if your bolt score is over 25 seconds, it's a lot easier to do physical exercise with the mouth closed. Number two, the size of your nostrils. If you have an individual with a compromised nose like mine, there's too great a resistance to breathing. So that individual would have to wear something like a nasal dilator. You know, breathe right strips, probably not ideal because of sweat and the stick, they don't stick or adhere to the face or to the nose. But, and you could do this as, you know, this is based on the Cottle maneuver. You place one finger here and one finger here, and you gently prise your nostrils. Do you feel a difference to breathe? And if you do, then a nasal dilator can help. So the turbine is one nasal dilator that's on the market. And another nasal dilator that was sent in to me is intake breed. And this is quite an interesting one in terms of it's little <clears throat> plastic strips that are put either side of the nose, but the little plastic strips have a, a, a piece of metal in it. And then you have a bridge and you put the bridge over the nose. And what it happens is that the magnet in the bridge is pulling open the nose. So, so far, these have been the best nasal dilators that I've come across. And, and the reason being is- breathe. Pardon? Intake breathe, they're called. Yeah. Intake breathing. I don't have any financial interest at all, but intake breathing. Um, but they're based in the United States. But yeah, they just arrived yesterday and I practiced them yesterday on the treadmill. And they absolutely work very well because they're not inserted into the nose, but they're opening the, the nose from the, from the outside. 
perfect perfect and that's one of the things i think similar to you i've got quite a small nasal cavity so i, I struggle quite a lot in terms of nasal breathing naturally so yes. I think like that for me would probably have huge amounts of benefits and value um, so I'd be, be intrigued to see how that works for me from that side of things. In, in terms of from a, a practical side of things to start to transition over to nasal breathing, like you've worked with athletes in the past, how would you recommend people try to try and move over to more of a nasal breathing approach? I would say, you know, do it within your limits, but don't just look at your breathing, how you are breathing during physical exercise. With breathing, it's your everyday breathing which determines how you breathe during physical exercise. If you are sleeping with your mouth open, if you're waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, that's going to impact your breathing during physical exercise. If you have your mouth open during the day, or if you are breathing fast and shallow during rest, and I'm not saying that you are breathing to the point of having a panic attack, but if you have a respiratory rate during rest, let's say 14 breaths per minute plus, it's too much. Now, I know medical textbooks will say that the normal respiratory rate is between 14 and 16. But 20 years ago, it wasn't. 20 years ago, when I looked at the respiratory rate, it was between 12 and 14. So it seems what is considered normal is being pushed, is being extended. And that is an issue. And maybe as a nation, we are becoming habitual chronic hyperventilators. And the biggest impact on breathing for an adult is probably stress. Constant exposure to stress, competitive pressures, work, um, family life, finances, and also perfectionist tendencies. And for women as well, women are more prone to breathing pattern disorders in terms of the change to hormones because hormonal changes will change breathing. So I would say to people, yeah, look at your everyday breathing and start switching to nose breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep. Then slow down your breathing to the point of a light air hunger during the day. And even just to practice this. So to slow down breathing, you want to gently focus on the airflow coming in and out of your nose and focus on slowing down the speed of the air coming into your nose. And at the top of the breath, bring a total feeling of relaxation to the body and have a relaxed and gentle breath out. So if you gently slow down the speed of air coming into your nose, and at the top of the breath, you bring a total feeling of relaxation to the body and you have a prolonged relaxed breath out, it's likely that the amount of air that you breathe is less than what you normally breathe. This in turn is going to generate a feeling of air hunger. Air hunger is telling you that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as you do that, for, do it for three to four minutes. Try and slow down your breathing to the point of air hunger for three to four minutes. Check the saliva in your mouth. Check the temperature of your fingers. And also check if you're feeling alert or drowsy. Typically what happens when you slow down your breathing, you have your focus on your breath. And when you slow down your breathing to the point of air hunger, it activates a parasympathetic response. You will become drowsy. At the same time, you will often experience more increased watery saliva in the mouth which is an indicator that the body is going into relaxation. And at the same time, most people will generally notice that their hands, the, the temperature of their fingers, their hands increases. Cold hands are not the sign of a warm heart. Cold hands and cold feet and brain fog are very common with people who breathe too hard. 
they breathe too fast, too hard, and in the process, they get rid of too much carbon dioxide, and the loss of carbon dioxide causes blood vessels to constrict and causes less oxygen to be, to be delivered throughout the body. We have to bear in mind, it's not about more air. It's about breathing light. And we have to also consider that modern life has changed our breathing. Many of us have developed breathing pattern disorders, and I think it's time to change that. <clears throat> so come on back to physical exercise. You go for a walk, you go for a jog, you go for a run. Do it easy enough. Keep your mouth closed. Make sure you warm up for about 10 to 15 minutes at an easy enough pace. During the warm up, do five or six strong breath holds. So as you're walking or as you're doing a light jog, but don't do breath holding if you're prone to high blood pressure, cardiovascular issues, any serious medical conditions, or if you're pregnant. So during the warm up, take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and walk or jog for maybe 15, 20, 30 paces, holding your breath, then let go, breathe in through your nose, and then resume breathing through the nose during your warm up. And after about a minute or so, do another breath hold and get in a few breath holds. And the reason being is because they will help open up your airway. They will, or both airways, both the nose and the lower airways, the lungs. They will help increase blood flow to the brain. They will help cause spleen contraction to release more red blood cells into circulation. They will put you into a more sympathetic response, which is conducive in terms of physical exercise. Then during your physical exercise, maintain nasal breathing. And if the air hunger gets too much, just back off the intensity a little bit, allow your breathing to calm down, and then increase the intensity after your breathing is calmed down. It typically takes about six to eight weeks to transition during physical exercise from mouth to nose. And also you have to look at the quality of the breath. Don't breathe fast and shallow during physical exercise. If you breathe fast and shallow, it's uneconomical and it's inefficient. It's all about breathing light, breathing slow, and breathing deep. And when I talk about breathing deep, I just mean breathing with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. A deep breath is not a big breath. And most people, when they are told to take a deep breath, they take a big breath. But a big breath is not going to increase blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. What's often told and thought is entirely the wrong thing to do. And I will always make this as a point. Yoga is a tremendous modality, but breathing has got misinterpreted in many aspects of yoga. If you look towards the sutras of yoga, and one woman has done so, her name is Robin Rottenberg. She's the yoga instructor for 30 years, and she wrote a book called Restoring Prana. And basically this book, which is written primarily for yoga instructors, it's quite science technical. She looked at how, when yoga was developed, how was breathing enshrined? And breathing was taught to be subtle, light, not hard. So yoga, the original yogis were not about breathing hard. They were not about breathing hard and fast but they were breathing about breathing subtle and light. And probably they understood that through your breath, if you breathe light, slow, and deep, 
you can stimulate the vagus nerve. You can increase what's called heart rate variability. I see, I think you have an aura ring on there. <laughs> you, you can improve respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Um, you can help to get a better balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic tone. You can increase alveolar ventilation. In other words, the amount of air and oxygen that gets down into the small air sacs. You can, you can really have a huge impact on your blood circulation, your oxygen delivery, and the functioning of your autonomic nervous system. But it's not about breathing hard. And I just say that out there because I taught 20, 25 years ago. I thought that it was necessary in order for me to get increased oxygen delivery to the brain. I thought it was beneficial to take big breaths. And I remember going into a finals exam. I was already anxious going in. I went for a walk before the exam for five minutes. And during that five minutes, I deliberately and intentionally took big, full breaths. And I walked into the exam hall, totally lightheaded and dizzy. So the nonsense that's often espoused in terms of breathing, take a deep breath, you're stressed. You have to quantify what is a deep breath. It should be light. In other words, you should not hear your breathing during rest. It should be slow and it should be accompanied by lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. That's a light, slow and a deep breath. I think the lateral expansion of the ribs is um, the, really the easy point to think about with that in terms of controlling your breathing, because I'm very much the same when you're saying taking a deep breath. It's very easy to sometimes think about taking a big breath in and like lift, yes. chest lift up rather than like a deep control. Yes. Breath. Yeah. And a deep breath, just think of a swimming pool. What does the word deep mean? You know, if you were to look at the definition of deep, it means far from the top. So in terms of the human lungs, a deep breath just means that you are bringing the air into the lower regions of the lungs, but you can do that with the lightest of breathing. And, you know, as we spoke about the diaphragm breathing muscle, it's not necessary. It's not just for breathing, but there's also a connection between the diaphragm and the emotions. When we get stressed, we tend to breathe using the upper chest. But when we breathe using the upper chest, we tend to be in a state of stress. Now, I was a mouth breather, and mouth breathers will always <clears throat> breathe fast and shallow. And all you have to do to test that out is look down at your chest, take a breath through the mouth, and see what part of the body moves. When you breathe through your mouth, do you, do you activate the upper chest regions or are you breathing low and slow? So mouth breathing is fast and shallow. Mouth breathing is synonymous with emergency throughout our evolution. That our ancestors and Neanderthals, for example, distant ancestors, they were innate nasal breathers during every function, during rest, during sleep, but also during physical exercise. Anthropologists discovered two years ago that Neanderthals had quite large nostrils. And their conclusion there was that they had quite large nostrils so that they could handle a large volume of air during physical exercise. In other words, they breathed it through their nose during physical exercise. Now, Caucasians typically will have a narrower facial structure and narrower noses. Where Africans and African-Americans um, typically will have a larger nasal airway. 
So some races of people will be better able to maintain nasal breathing during physical exercise more than others by virtue of the, the size of their airway, their nasal airway. Is there a direct correlation or any research done to show a relationship between maybe anxiety levels and mouth breathing? I would say without a question of a doubt. If we look at the, the literature, breathing pattern disorders affects 9.5 of the general population, 30% of the asthma population, and 80% of the anxiety population, 80%. Now, last night I gave a two-hour clinic for people with anxiety, panic disorder, high stress, and depression. And here's another thing that I cannot get my head around. You have hundreds and thousands of individuals who are going to psychotherapy, psychiatry, psychologists for counseling, which is all very well. But counseling is not addressing respiratory physiology and counseling is not addressing their sleep. Now, last night, I work with small groups we do a two-hour clinic every, every few weeks with anxiety or with sleep or with asthma. And I put the camera in on individuals. It's a small group, so it's quite personal. And I look at their breathing. And to a person, I will typically see fast and shallow breathing. So they're not always breathing through the mouth, but typically they are breathing fast and shallow. And as long as they breathe fast and shallow, they are going to have agitation of the mind. How can you address agitation of the mind unless you learn to breathe slow and low and noses with that? And also sleep. You know, I remember a few years ago, somebody coming into me with extreme depression. And I, you know, during the course of conversation, and I just asked, how do you, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And she told me she felt absolutely exhausted waking up. And I said, has your doctor ever kind of requested that you would do a sleep study or investigated your sleep, your psychiatrist? No, never happened. And I think it's because the psychiatrist concluded that the exhaustion was as a result of her depression. Whereas maybe we should be looking at that from a different perspective. Chronic sleep problems. It may be including obstructive sleep apnea, results in constant fatigue and anxiety. And if we are supposed to cope in today's crazy modern day life with competitive pressures, with having to pay mortgages, to function in highly stressed jobs for a lot of individuals, we cannot cope in that situation so well if we are exhausted and if we have anxiety in the mind. And that in turn could be enough to cause depression. So really what is causing what here? And sometimes there's a commonality of symptoms. If you look at individuals with insomnia, the symptoms of insomnia are fatigue, cognitive difficulty, and irritability. But also those same, those same symptoms are in exhaustion syndrome, burnout, depression, anxiety, obstructive sleep apnea. So, you know, I think, again, we need to have more an open-minded view of the interconnectedness of the human body. And coming back to your question about people with breathing pattern disorders and anxiety, how on earth can you address agitation of the mind 
if you don't have good sleep quality and if you don't have good breathing. And if you make simple and subtle changes to your breathing, it can improve your sleep and it can improve the quality of your mind. And I have seen it with many thousands of individuals since 2002. Um, like for the first 14, 15 years of, of my work, I only worked with unhealthy people. The last few years I've been working with more, some, well, about 50% now are performance athletes and 50% are people with poorer health. So we see it all the time. And, you know, I think the issue is that breathing, people kind of look at breathing in terms of their own silos. So you will have one instructor and they may be focusing on the biomechanics of breathing. You have another instructor and they may be focusing on heart rate variability. You have another instructor and they may be focusing on the biochemistry of breathing. Whereas I wanted to look at breathing and I could do this with the oxygen advantage. I could look at anything that was the research was there that could bring benefit that I could reproduce it. So when I have worked, when I'm working with somebody, I want to look work from three dimensions of functional breathing, the biochemistry, the biomechanics and cadence or, or coherent breathing. And that way, you know, we can get the maximum effect and impact in terms of breathing on the individual. And it's all very simple. So I would say to, to your listeners, start slowing, start breathing through your nose as much as you can, both during the day, during sleep, during physical exercise. When you're at home and you're sitting into your nice comfortable chair and you might be watching television, put one hand on your chest, put one hand above your navel and just gently start slowing down your breathing. And slow down your breathing to the point of a light air hunger and see what changes that brings about. And then what you could do is put your hands on either side of your lower two ribs. So as you breathe in, your ribs are gently moving out. And as you breathe out, your ribs are gently moving in. So it's slow and silent breathing. And then you could time your breath. Breathe in for five seconds. Breathe out for five seconds. Breathe in for five seconds. Breathe out for five seconds. And COVID-19, Nobody is talking about nasal breathing. Washing hands, perfectly fine. Social distancing, perfectly fine. But nose has its own natural antiviral mechanism, and that's by a gas called nitric oxide. And if you Google clinical trials, nitric oxide, COVID-19, you will see that clinical trials are now underway. Investigating nitric oxide as a treatment against COVID-19 because in 2005, looking at a different coronavirus, sorry, it was coronavirus, but it was SARS, they found that in a laboratory experiment, nitric oxide prevented the replication of the coronavirus. And also nitric oxide plays a role in the production of surfactant. Nitric oxide is sterilizing the incoming air. It's a natural bronchodilator. And it also helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs but your nose is a source of nitric oxide. So a real question here would be, and I'm putting a post out on social media tomorrow. It was comments made back in the 1920s. Individuals with tuberculosis, those individuals who caught tuberculosis were more likely to be mouth breathers. Mouth breathing, you have no natural line of defense in terms of, of course, your body has its own immune system. 
But what I'm talking about, the first line of defense in terms of the airway, when you compare the nose to the mouth, there is no comparison. And I can, like I was in London a few weeks ago, I was traveling right up until March 17th. And in London, in a tube, in a crowded and packed train. And I did two things for the duration of the journey. I breathed through my nose and I breathed hardly any air as possible. And I felt air hunger for the duration of the journey. And the reason being is nose breathing is going to help reduce the amount of particles coming into the body. And also to bear in mind the potency of nitric oxide. Also, when I breathed even less air, I too then am reducing you know, the likelihood of taking in the virus into my body because of the fact that I'm breathing less air. But infected people should also breathe through their nose. And the reason being is because mouth breathing, it emits a 42% water loss into the atmosphere. So you can imagine going to a gym. And by the way, this is not going to go away anyway too soon. No, Gyms are going to reopen in two months or one month or three months or whatever it will be. You will have a group of individuals in the gym. They will be exercising hard with their mouth open and they will be emitting a greater water vapor into the atmosphere, almost like an aerosol. And this is how the infection is transmitted. It's not just transmitted during sneezing or coughing, but it's also transmitted during talking and breathing. So I would say to anybody, anybody with the risk of being infected, nasal breathe only because that way you will, you will emit less of the infection into the atmosphere. And those of you who are not affected also nose breathe. And if you're in a supermarket, when you're passing by somebody, nose breathe would even hold your breath. That's what I do. I go to a shop, you're allowed you're, you know, to get essential items. If I'm passing by somebody in an aisle, I will deliberately hold my breath as I pass by that person because I don't want to take that virus into my body if I can help it at all. Interesting. I've been doing that anyway the last few weeks. I was under the same impression from that thing. I think yeah. it was a bit weird. And I think my wife probably did, but in terms of like a, an easy strategy maybe to get used to using nasal breathing more, would you ever suggest mouth taping during the day when just working or anything like that to keep you almost in that routine? Like usually mouth taping during the day, is that something you'd recommend ever, Patrick? Yeah, we often do, especially with children. Um, it just, it little, your voice there froze a little bit. Sorry. So I think I got, I got the last part of it anyway. Like working with children, we put the children's videos up completely free of charge on the website, butecoclinic.com. And the reason being is because we wanted children to have no reason as to why they should breathe through their mouths. If their nose is congested, they can open up their nose by doing the nose and blocking exercise. They can also help to address breathing pattern disorders if any of the kids have asthma or anxiety and to encourage them to switch to nasal breathing. The biggest thing that we did with, in terms of working with children was how do you change the behavior? And this will apply both to children and adults. It's not just about addressing the obstruction of the nose. It's also about changing the behavior of breathing. So we introduced a tape with the kids and I'm going to show it to you. Now this tape, we also use it with adults, both during wakefulness and during sleep. 
So the tape is called Myotape. And it's based on the premise of, it's kinesio, a form of kinesiotape. And basically, you get the, the tape and you stretch it by about 30%. And you stick it to the mouth like that, around surrounding the mouth. And it's the tensions by the elasticity of the tape which brings the lip together. So we would encourage children, especially if they are chronic mouth breathers, especially when they are distracted, to wear taping of the mouth for at least a half an hour to an hour daily. Now, before that, we were using 3M micropore tape, but the problem is kids can't talk. And no child is going to sit, sit there for a half an hour to an hour daily with their mouth completely sealed because they want to communicate. Compared so, to <laughs> quiet house. But um, yeah, the tape then it allows children then to talk, to communicate, to converse. And also at the same time, if they forget about breathing through their nose, but when the mouth falls open, the tape, because it's elasticated, reminds them to bring the lips together. Adults the same. It could be very beneficial, even just to use 3M one-inch micropore tape during wakefulness to get the mouth closed. And then during sleep, then we use myotape for kids because there's no risk involved. And for adults, especially adults who may be apprehensive about taping their mouth at night. What I would say is you should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. If you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, you are more likely to have spent more time in shallow sleep, in light sleep. You don't wake up feeling as refreshed as you should do. It's more likely that you need to go to the bathroom a couple of times during your sleep. Um, so you shouldn't have to get up to go to the bathroom during the night because that in turn is causing sleep fragmentation. We need, when we go to sleep for whatever it is, six, seven or eight hours, that we achieve a deep sleep and we stay there for a period of time. And nasal breathing is going to be absolutely vital in ensuring a refreshing night's sleep. It's a very, very solid advice. It's a very solid advice. The um, interesting thing you mentioned there, I think as well, again, it's about people waiting to go to the toilet during the night and having a dry mouth, because I think those are two very telltale points that maybe something's yes. off. Because you hear stories of sometimes some people say they go to the toilet four or five times during the night. And their yes. sleep then becomes so disrupted and fragmented. And then that carry over into their everyday life in terms of feeling tired and lethargic all the time. And also from yes. a, a fat loss or performance side of things is going to have a huge detrimental effect. Yeah. And also on health, because I actually think that light sleep has really, really a huge stress on the body. Um, and I'll give you this reason why. In one study looking at different phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea, they looked at peak crash, loop gain, arousal threshold, and upper airway recruitment. But it wasn't the person who was stopping breathing for a minute who was most at risk of mortality. It was the light sleeper. It was the person who was having continuous sleep fragmentation, continuous, to, continuous arousals. And that was a study conducted over 11 years involving, or yeah, it was a longitudinal study involving 11,000 people I think it was over 11 years. It was published in a journal by the American Thoracic Society just in 2018. So we have to be really looking at the long-term consequences of light and shallow breathing, sorry, light and shallow sleep. Now, how could you help to reduce insomnia? If you reduce and slow down your breathing for 15 minutes before sleep, it's very important to help improve sleep. 
So if you're, you know, your last 15 minutes of the night, really make a concerted effort to slow down your breathing and breathe less air. Feel an air hunger. That will activate a more parasympathetic tone. And as a result, then you're more likely to have a deep and refreshing sleep. That combined with nasal breathing. That's some absolutely awesome advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. It's been a huge, huge insightful and fascinating conversation. I personally have taken so much value from this of things I'm personally going to implement uh, starting today with trying some breath holds and doing nasal breathing, warming up, working out. So that'd be one of them. And I think I'm going to get back out of the mouth tape again to try and stop myself mouth breathing so much during the day. Yep. Naturally, um, I want to mouth breathe all the time. So um, I hugely appreciate the advice and information you provided. And there's huge amounts of value here for all of the listeners. For anyone to find out some more information about you, where's the best place to get in touch? Uh, any of your books or information about you? Yeah, so I have a lot of books on Amazon. I've got eight different books. So if you just put a, my name into Amazon, Patrick McKeown, you'll pull up different books there. The, the instruction is in the box. Um, and then we have, for health, it's butecoclinic.com. B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. There we have a lot of information for children. All of the exercise for kids are free. But we also have two-hour clinics for asthma, for sleep, and for anxiety. And they're relatively cheap. Like it's $95 for the two hours, and you get, you get the recorded session. Then for sports performance and for focus, it's oxygenadvantage.com. And there we do instructor training. And we also do two-hour masterclass. So, yeah, there's a lot of resources there that can be helpful for people. Absolutely awesome. I'll pop all of the links information for the books and the websites below in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time again today, Patrick. And I hope you get a huge amount of value from this. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a five-star review and as always subscribe. It's always appreciated. And I hope your family stays safe and well during this period, Patrick. And I hope we catch up soon. And that was an absolutely killer episode of the Powercast. Hope you guys absolutely loved it. Now I want to fill you into something I put together, which is absolutely incredible to help you not just survive during this quarantine, but actually thrive and come out of the situation in your best shape ever. So I appreciate a lot of people are really struggling at the moment in terms of knowing how to train from home, knowing how to stick to their diet when stuck in the house. There's ladies in lockdown, guys stuck in the house. There's a lot of issues going on here. And I wanted to come forward to help you guys and girls come out of the situation as a success. Now, what I have done is completely revamped my world-famous Shrednate and Sculptinate programs. And what's even more exciting about this is I've given you 77% off on the price of the program. So normally it costs £149 or $200. US Now you can sign up for just £37 per month or $45. US And what's better, you can actually lock this price in for the rest of the year to see a new training program and new diet every eight weeks. Now, the new versions of the program are fully home workout based, just using your body weight and some basic bands. These will get you the normal world famous results that you get on Shrednate and Sculptinate, so you come out of this situation in the best shape ever. If you'd like to get involved, please click the link below in the podcast notes or drop me a message with any questions. We'd love to have you not just another client of Shrednate and Sculptinate, but another success story.